Well, Christmas is over. For parents like me, it's probably a huge sigh of relief that the kids aren't bouncing around in the house. But there are many things I miss. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Christmas over the years is not just the presents under the tree. Those are often the big ticket items, and those are great. But one of the things that I like is the simple pleasure of opening up the stocking. And the stockings are great because, first of all, they always have this hint of mystery about them. You can look in the fabric of the stockings and kind of feel what's in there, right? You can think, oh, this is a little hard and this little soft, and I wonder what it is. What's also great about the stockings is that when you finally do open them up and you're pulling things out, it's just thing after thing after thing, and they're all practical, right? I mean, they're not usually big ticket items. You pull out nail clippers, well, that's great. Here's a new tie, well, that's great. Uh, here's a, you know, some bath soap. I, I guess that's a hint that I need to be taking better personal hygiene. But in all seriousness, they were fun partly because there's lots of little things for you to look at and to enjoy. And I bring that up because, of course, now the Christmas season is over. As I explained last week, Epiphany was the last day of the Christmas season, and we've changed gears. We're now in the Epiphany season where we're looking forward to how Christ is the light in our everyday lives. And I want to speak to you today about this passage I just read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. This is a passage that I mentioned, the stockings, because it's a passage that has lots and lots of little things to graze on, things to pull out, to examine a little bit, and things that I think are also quite practical for us. But if we don't spend time on each of them, I think we lose some of the significance of this passage. So I want to spend today going uh, for a dive on each of these different little points and hopefully uh, be able to keep a, a weaving, a, a, a consistent thing throughout it so that it'll first of all help you understand better what this passage is saying about Jesus, who he is, and what his identity is. And secondly, what this passage is telling us about baptism and its continued meaning for us, even though we're separated by 2,000 years from the events that are discussed here in the passage. So here's the first thing. Let's start off with our passage here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. One of the things that starts pointing us towards Jesus' identity is what begins this passage with people asking John an interesting question. Verse 15 of chapter 3. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. We heard a bit about John the Baptist in Advent several weeks ago before Christmas season began, and we heard about him preaching out in the desert. One of the things that we got to keep in mind when we think about John the Baptist is his is always a ministry of pointing to something that's greater and coming. John the Baptist is a person that preaches very strong messages, and people are going out in the desert to be baptized by him. But perhaps you can think back a few weeks to when we first heard John's preaching, and we realize that when we hear John's preaching, why it is people are very expectant about a Messiah that is to come. John says just before this, um, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to yourselves. We have, say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. The axe is lying at the fruit of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That in itself is a scary message, but one of the things that we need to do when we're hearing this is to think, what were these people hearing and understanding when they first heard it? John's actually alluding to a passage in Isaiah that creates a great expectation in the people for a coming Messiah. Chapter 10 of Isaiah, verse 33. Look, the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The tallest trees will be cut down, the lofty will be brought low, he will hack down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majestic trees will fall. Isaiah is talking about a corrupt leadership in Israel at a time where the kings and the princes 
And the religious leadership are failing the people because they're taking bribes, they're oppressing the poor, they're not listening to God, and God is going to take away that leadership. And so John the Baptist, by preaching about this, is saying this is happening in our time as well. But what's really interesting is what happens next. Why is the expectation that a great Messiah and Savior is coming? It's because of what happens right after these words in Isaiah. Chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah is talking about God taking away the current leadership and replacing it with a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, with a descendant of the great King David who will come up and take over the kingdom and rule righteously and faithfully. John has been pounding this message again and again, and so people are full of expectation because they realize John's saying that there is a Messiah coming. You've been dissatisfied with your current leadership for good reason. There is someone coming who is greater. And then John, when people say, is it you? Are you the one that, that we're all talking about? No, he says, there's somebody coming right around the corner. And so great is he that I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. This is really important for us to understand as background because it points to who John is saying and Luke is saying Jesus is. He's the coming Messiah, the one who has come to save Israel. When we actually get to this passage in, in uh, Luke's that we read, it's also worthwhile understanding that John is quoting or, or paraphrasing from the last of the great Old Testament prophets, Malachi. Listen to Malachi chapter 3 and compare it with what John has said. This is what he says in Malachi. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord. John here is saying, right around the corner is someone coming who will fulfill what is happening, or this is talked about in Malachi, with a winnowing fork to clear out the sin of the people. So that's pointing to this Jesus. So first of all, it shows us the identity that Jesus has come to be the Messiah that was fulfilled. What happens immediately next? Jesus is baptized, and up out of the water, Jesus comes, and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven, and a voice, the Father in heaven, says, This is my Son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. John's been saying these things, and the people in the crowd might very well say, Well, John's nuts. He's exaggerating. So what does God do? God speaks out of heaven after Jesus is baptized and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What he's doing is he's putting a stamp of approval on what John has said. This is true. This is someone who is the Messiah that is to come. This is my son, and you can trust him in just the same way that you trust me. Throughout Israel's history, God showed again and again he's trustworthy. He called Abraham, and he made a people out of Abraham. In Israel's history, when they were slaves in Egypt, God saves them out of slavery and brings them to the promised land. When Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon, God brings them back. God says, just as you can trust me, you can put your trust in this person. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
Later on, we see in the transfiguration, same thing where Jesus is transformed on the mountaintop and God said, my beloved son, listen to him. And then when Jesus is crucified, the leaders of the uh, nation of Israel say, you are a blasphemer. You're crucified because you say that you and God are one. But God raises him from the dead to say, no, in fact, I am still pleased in this one. The things he has said are right. And then Luke tells us in the book of Acts that he raises this son to the right hand of God. This is a passage that is hinting to the true identity of Jesus as the one who is our Savior. And the one not only as our Savior, but as the one who has the same power and trustworthiness as the God who has led Israel throughout her history. That's really important for us to hang on to because it says, first of all, that Jesus is worthy of the worship and honor we give. But secondly, that Jesus is worthy of the trust that the church calls to place upon him. This one is a worthy and trustworthy person. And it invites us to put our whole trust in Christ. That's first of all about Jesus' identity. Secondly, think about the place where this is happening. Again, keeping in mind some of the things you may know from the Old Testament, it's really significant that Jesus goes out to John, and John the Baptist is out in the middle of the desert by the banks of the Jordan River. There's plenty of lakes in Israel. You could go to the Sea of Galilee, for example. There's plenty of little rivers, and of course there's little pools that you could go and be baptized. It's significant that John goes out into the wilderness. And John clearly styles himself as an Old Testament prophet. He wears a, a camel-haired robe. He, he eats locusts and wild honey. He preaches uh, messages of repentance. And we're told that he goes out into the desert to call Israel to repentance. But what's so interesting about this is that he goes out to a place and he asks people to be baptized in the Jordan in order to restore Israel and to save people from their sins. But this is exactly what happened many, many years ago when God saved the people of Israel from their slavery. When Israel was in Egypt, what did God do? They cried out because they were in oppression. The Egyptians kept them in bondage and God broke the oppression. He led them through the Red Sea. And although the people rebelled and through fear did not go to the promised land, God led them for 40 years until he raised up a new leader named Joshua. And Joshua led the people over the Jordan River into Palestine, which became the promised land, and the people settled there in freedom and in peace. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus goes out to the Jordan River and comes out of the river, just that same river that brought people into the promised land. But Jesus is more than that. Jesus is, in fact, the Greek form of the word Joshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew word. Jesus is the Greek form of it, just like Andrew is the English form of French, which Andre. Same meaning, same word, but just slightly different pronunciation. So here's the first significance of Jesus' identity here. It is saying that Jesus is a new Joshua. He leads not like Joshua with an iron sword in his hand to defeat physical enemies. He comes with the sword of the Spirit in his hand to defeat the things that oppress his people. Right after this, uh, Jesus is tempted and then he comes back into the, the, the nation, the Palestinian uh, area. And what does Luke tell us Jesus does? He goes to his hometown, the synagogue, and he reads a passage from Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the captives and light to those who dwell in darkness. Jesus says that when I'm anointed with the Holy Spirit, I am taking on the same role that Joshua did to becoming the warrior who mightily breaks the chains of oppression that binds you. And throughout his ministry, that's what Jesus does. 
when some poor blind man calls out and his disciples say, be quiet. He doesn't need to spend time with lackeys like yourself. Jesus stops and he heals the man. When prostitutes and tax collectors that all of the religious leadership say you shouldn't waste your time with come to Jesus, Jesus says, come, I will eat in your home. And he brings freedom from the shame that the whole culture has placed upon these people. Jesus' ministry, his entire identity is founded in bringing freedom to captives and breaking the oppressor's rod. But there's also something really significant about Jesus' baptism here, and that lies, and the hint of it is coming with the dove that descends. You may have uh, heard as I was reading, when Jesus is baptized, we're told the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove and sat upon Jesus. Do you know where else the dove is used where it first comes in the scriptures? Think all the way back to Sunday school and the famous story of Noah's Ark. Do you know why the dove is always a symbol of peace in our culture? Because when Noah's Ark was floating on the waters, after 40 days in which God had destroyed the wickedness of the world, destroyed the old order of creation, Noah opens the window of the ark and he doesn't know if it's safe to come out. And so what does he do? He takes a dove. And he sends out the dove, and the dove flies around over the waters, and the first sign of hope Noah has that there is a new creation out there for him and his family to be safe and to inhabit in freedom is that the dove comes back with an olive branch in its beak. Ever since then, the dove and the olive branch have been symbols of peace, that God has restored and brought about a new creation. Jesus descends into the water and comes out, and the dove comes upon him, One of the things that that's communicating is it's communicating to all of us and to the crowds that Jesus' ministry is a ministry of dying to the old and raising up to the new. It's a hint that throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus, when he speaks about his death and resurrection, often refers not just to his death, he calls it the baptism of his death and suffering. When James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they have a very convincing mother-in-law. Do you remember this story? And their mother-in-law goes to Jesus and says, wow, this guy's awesome. Look at the signs he's doing. He's coming into his kingdom. I really think my sons are the best of your disciples. And I would really love it if they got cushy jobs in your administration when you become the king, right? And Jesus turns uh, to the sons, uh, uh, John and uh, James, and says, are you prepared to have the baptism with which I will be baptized with? What is he meaning? He's talking about, are you willing to die to yourself the way that I will die and be raised? Jesus' baptism here is the first hint that what his ministry is about is a ministry of him sacrificing everything for the sake of his beloved. It is saying that this is a God who is not disinterestedly waving magic wands to set things right. It is one who has skin in the game here, willing to shed his own blood, to pour out his own life and sacrifice for people he truly loves. This is not just the mighty Lord who stretches out his arm and costs him nothing. This is a Lord that we turn to because we know that he is heavily invested in our freedom, so much so that he is willing to sacrifice everything. That leads me to what I wanted to say as the second point about this passage, about the meaning of baptism. Because it's all fine and good to say these are interesting historical details and interesting ways of understanding who Jesus is. But it also, by uh, showing all this in the context of baptism, Jesus, I think, is pointing us to the reality of what our baptism means. That the promises Jesus is making to the crowds here and what he is doing is not just a promise made to the crowds. It is a promise made to all of us when we undergo uh, the waters of baptism just as Jesus did. 
Jesus is baptized, and as our leader, when we are baptized, we are made one with the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're baptized in the name of. One of the things that's really interesting about baptism, when people come for baptism, is it runs so far against the grain of what we often expect in our culture today. One of the things that we tend to think of ourselves of now is we tend to think of ourselves as consumers, right? You go to McDonald's and I'll say, I'll have this and I'll have this and I'll have this. And if you got the money for pay for it, that's what you're going to get. And of course, we think about most things in that same way, sometimes even faith. We think about how often you can listen to podcasts on faith and we think of ourselves as those who consume. Baptism is something different. Think about when you come to a church and you ask to be baptized, what are you doing? You are asking someone else to do something for you that they may or may not say yes to. And that is something that is a bit of a risk. In fact, it's not like ordering a, a McDonald's cheeseburger. It's more like asking somebody to marry you. Hopefully, you know them well enough to kind of suspect they're going to say yes. But every once in a while, you hear a deeply embarrassing and sad story, don't you? Of some guy who's so eager to, to propose, he, he's up at the jumbotron at the hockey game and says, will you marry me? And then her face falls in embarrassment because she doesn't want to say yes, right? Horrifying embarrassment. Hopefully he would know well enough to know whether she's going to say yes or not before he makes that kind of commitment. But that, of course, is a fear. We come to God, and although sometimes we talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts, that's not really accurate. What in fact we're doing is we're saying, we want to come to you and ask you to invite us into your kingdom, invite us into your family. And it's a risk we take. We're asking, do we believe what happens in this baptism so long ago when God says he is worthy of trust? He is worthy of placing your whole self into. This one can be trusted just as much as I was trusted by the Israelites to lead you through the Red Sea. Do you trust him? to enthusiastically say yes when I say, Jesus, I want to be a member of your kingdom. That's what we're asking. And that's what baptism is. It is an invitation to trust our God and an invitation to say, I believe that you are as trustworthy as you say you are. Think about when little Peyton was baptized a few weeks ago. What do I ask the parents? I ask, do you put your whole trust, or do you put your whole faith in his trust and love? It is an invitation to put our whole trust in Christ. Here's the second thing, though, that baptism is revealed as when we look at Jesus' baptism itself. It's revealed as a promise, not just that we're making, that we want to ask you something, God. It is a promise that God is making to us. Do you remember how I said that Jesus comes with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he comes uh, as the new Joshua who is to destroy the chaff that bears us, uh, binds us down, destroy the bonds of oppression? Sometimes in this world, when you hear, particularly in this January season, after we've all indulged too much over Christmas, what are we hearing? I've heard tons of ads for uh, gyms, haven't you? And, and all those gyms, Movadi or whatever it is, are saying, it's going to be great and easy and get back into shape, but you know very well what's going to happen. You walk through the doors of the gym and those weights don't suddenly get less weighty. You go there and you sweat. And then when it's a day like this, where it's minus 20-something, you think, oh, man, I don't want to do that. There's a little voice in your head that says, yeah, you're right, you shouldn't go do that. And then you feel yourself frustrated because I blew all this money for an annual membership. I used it three times, and I pay for basically 12 months that I never used it. That's what happens. That's how the world says you improve. You improve when you find yourself strong enough to defeat the things that bind you. That is not what baptism tells us. 
What it tells us is we are being member, made members of a family of one who is strong enough to break the things that bind us. Our challenge as Christians is not to toughen up and to, by the sweat of our brow, defeat everything that binds us. Instead, our discipline is to come again and again to Christ saying, I am struggling with this thing that gets power over me, but I trust in you that you have the power to break the bondage under which I live. Some of the greatest stories I've heard of Christians who have triumphed are people who have in fact struggled the most with things like addictions and patterns of behavior that truly bear them down. But these are so often the ones that grow up despite having so many scars, despite having many shames heaped upon them by the world, are people who speak most convincingly about the joy of being a Christian because they have enjoyed the fact that Christ the Lord does not judge them, but instead judges their oppression, breaks their oppression, and says there is hope for you. Shame does not need to hang like an albatross around your neck because I am strong enough as the new Joshua to strike off those bonds of oppression that are around your neck and weigh you down. The hope we have in our baptism is the promise that God makes to us in it, saying, you are now baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are my problem now. Call on me so that I might be strong enough to break the bonds. But here's the last, and here's perhaps the most challenging thing. Jesus' ministry here, when he comes and is dipped into the water and come out, is a ministry, as I said, of the old life dying and the new life rising. It's a significant thing that when Jesus is baptized, it's not just Jesus signing a document. It's not just him preaching and saying something. It is Jesus leaning back into the arms of John the Baptist to be dipped into the water and raised up. His whole body is consecrated to the service of God. And in fact, his whole body is poured out in sacrifice on a cross. One of the challenges for us as Christians is to not believe that our belief in God as a member of, uh, is simply a matter of checking off boxes. I believe you're the Father. I believe you're the Son. I believe X, Y, and Z. It is a matter of trusting God with our body and soul. Those of you who have been Anglicans for a long time may remember at the end of the Book of Common Prayer Eucharist, there was always this great prayer. And here we offer and to present unto thee, O Lord, our souls, ourselves, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. What did that say? So that God has a claim on our bodies. Yes, he empowers us, and by his grace allows us to do things we cannot do by ourselves, but he says that our very bodies are meant to be signs of the love of God. The grace of God and his Holy Spirit working through us allows the world to see the goodness of our God, not just how our minds operate, but by how our bodies do. Think of little children, for example, and about the way that we serve them. Despite the fact that they're children, we change their diapers, we, we kiss their boo-boos, we put the little band-aids on them. What are we doing? We're using our hands, the hands given by God, to show them there's love in this world and they can have hope for it. What is it we do when we carry our neighbor's groceries in or help them shovel their walk? What does it do when we give a person a hug who needs consoling or we sit next to them when they're grieving or we visit them in the hospital? What does it mean when we use our bodies to clean up the church after things have gotten dirty or we give of the fruit of our, of our labors to, to charities that help those who are poor to the church? It's saying that our bodies, not just our souls and our minds, but our bodies are meant to be consecrated to the service of God so that the world might see what we do with our hands and feet and realize that we have a good and loving Savior. We have the privilege and the challenge of being ambassadors for Christ in this world, to be little lights that reflect the great light of who Christ is. So what's our challenge 
and our blessing today. First of all is to recognize who Christ is in his fullness. The one who is, yes, the son of God. The one who is the savior who breaks the bonds of oppression and who is willing to give everything for us. He can be trusted and that is what we are called to do. But secondly is to say that when we come to him in baptism, not only are we challenged to trust him and to use our bodies as a, as a living sacrifice, we are also encouraged to keep turning to him again and again so that we might be stopped or might be freed from the things that stop us from being that witness. Remember that this baptism of Jesus shows us powerfully who he is as a good, powerful, and loving Savior. And remember, it empowers us to be saviors to the world around us, reflecting the goodness and love of the God we serve. Don't hesitate to come to Christ and to live up to the promises made in your baptism. But instead, with joy, go out into the world knowing that Christ, your powerful and mighty Savior, is walking with you to empower you to do all he calls you to do, and with the great purpose of being a place of light and joy to the world that so often lives in despair and darkness. Let us pray.